Hi, everyone. Before we get into today's interview, just wanted to drop a little reminder to stay up to date with all the latest episodes of On The Margin. You can subscribe to the BlockWorks Macro YouTube. Just go up there, just click the little uh, subscribe button, or you can click the links at the top of this episode. It'll take you over to Apple, Spotify, whatever your preferred platform is. Just subscribe there. If you could, leave a rating and review. Really appreciate it. All right, on with the show. All right, everyone, welcome back to another weekly roundup edition of On the Margin. Today, I'm joined, as always, by my energetic co-host, despite his late night last night, Miss Mark Yusko. Yeah, you know, as we were talking before we came on air, I just got to stop traveling on Thursdays. So I apologize for the uh, rundown look. Um, But out in Denver for a a sales event. And um, by the way, shout out to uh, one of our listeners was was there i i love i i love the fact that no matter where i go now there's somebody who joins us every saturday again we are so grateful for that but that was cool um but my flight got delayed i didn't get home till three in the morning and so thankfully michael's a little flexible we're, we're recording this a little later than normal so i could go to our our holiday event we do a habitat build and luncheon uh once a year which is fantastic but but I am super energetic, so straight to the uh, the reveal. Uh, so I got my diversified portfolio shirt on. I love that. But and I don't have Bitcoin pants on today. But I do have the on-chain monkey socks. Why do I have the on-chain monkey socks today instead of Bitcoin socks or Solana socks? Holy moly! We'll talk about Solana. It's because Bitcoin. You know, shout out to Danny and Amanda and, and good things and the team just converted the Genesis to Bitcoin from, from ETH to Bitcoin. Pretty amazing. And, um, you heard an interesting question. I'll posit this to you, Michael. Um, someone said if, if ETH were invented today, would anyone use it? Like, Ooh, Ooh. (laughs) That's it. Cause, cause the reason ETH is so awesome right now is because it has the critical mass and, and the foundation and the developers, but the the you know the the catching up on the Solana ecosystem, particularly in things like NFTs and and wallets, is it's been impressive. I'm I'm giving them some major props. So anyway, so much to talk about today. Plot. Yeah. I will say I, I do think we are relearning what I've always thought, which is that price drives narrative and not the other way around. And if ETH price was doing a little bit better, no one will be asking those questions. I'll tell you that. You know, um, that that that's a great that's a great point. It is a very it's well, it no, it's a great point. But, but one caveat. But, one caveat. Yeah. The average person in this world isn't going to pay 50 bucks to flip an NFT, right? They're just like, I agree. Right. But that's not, but Ethereum's business model is actually to transition to a B2B chain. And by the way, Ethereum and Bitcoin. Actually, Amen. Amen to that. Um, Ethereum and Bitcoin actually have the same business model, although the Bitcoin people don't acknowledge this. So here's, <laughs> right. So here, because the whole point of I being little blocks, right, is you want to, you want to jam. So block size wars were fought back in 2017, 2018. We ended up limiting the block size. You want to make it smaller. So fewer higher quality transactions go through, but you still need transactions. And those transactions are should be expensive, but that doesn't matter because if yeah. you're settling $50 million transactions, then $30 on 50 million isn't very much. Uh, so Bitcoin actually, I feel like the thing that Bitcoin has to catch up actually on there is on their layer twos. And that is the same thing for Ethereum. Ultimately, actually, there's a little bit of a, a debate 
on the Ethereum side, they don't want people launching stuff on ETH main chain. They want to migrate the activity Absolutely. to the layer twos. As the way should, and, and look, we've been talking about this for a while, right? That you don't need speed at the, the base settlement layer. And, 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 and look, it's exactly the same in the world of money, right? Your Visa card, super fast, mm. but it's not the final settlement layer. It only settles once a month, really. I mean, it settles with the merchants every day, but it settles with the bank on ACH. Remember, ACH takes two days to clear, and then it settles down to Fedwire at, at the base layer. And then underneath that is gold, which is what, what makes the money possible. So you don't – but but I, I do think what's interesting, I and I'm, I'm not as up to speed as on this as I should be because I had a weird week of travel, but – um, good week of travel. I don't mean weird. I just mean a, an abnormally large week of travel relative to, you know, the new normal where you're not traveling as much. And I love it. I love being back with people. Oh my God, Michael. It is just so awesome. In fact, it was funny. We had our, our holiday lunch and everyone came in and I'm having, you know, the, the year end remarks and we give a, a most valuable creaker award. And, uh, I said, you know, guys, I love this. I love this. And I wish this was like this all the time. And you just saw these faces like, I said, don't worry, I'm not going to mandate that we come in. And, and one of the guys like, mandate it, mandate it. <laughs> you know what? Actually, our director of finance this week was like, I've decided I'm coming in every day. I'm just happier when I'm in. I'm coming in every day. And I was like, I will join you. I will come in every day too. Because I'm actually just happier. I've said this the whole time. I used to be a consultant. I actually am very familiar with traveling and working on the road. I just really don't think it's all it's cracked up to be. And I think people crave connection. We're meant, we are meant to do different things in different environments at different times. We're meant to live in our home. I I don't believe we're all meant to work in our home. I believe I meant we're to live. And when you go to work, it's kind of like, I mean, here I am looking sloppy today in a a t-shirt, but suiting up matters a little bit. Like when I suit up for work, I'm serious. And now maybe we're never going to go back to ties. All right, everyone, we will be back to the program in just a moment. But before we do, I wanted to give you the inside scoop about something that we've been cooking up at Blockworks these last couple of months. So in March of this coming year, in London, Blockworks is going to be gathering 1,200 of the world's largest asset managers, that's fund managers and allocators, financial institutions, think big banks, payment providers, etc., and professional traders at the largest institutionally focused conference in digital assets, DAS London. Now, it's very rare that you get the likes of JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Point72, the large HFTs, the family offices all in one room at the same time. So if you want to know what the big money is doing in digital assets these days, this is the conference for you. To give you an early sneak peek at some of the stuff that we're going to be talking about, one, the intersection of macro and digital assets. And where are we in the market cycle? We're going to be talking about real world assets, so that's stable coins, on-chain treasuries, all of that fun stuff. And we're going to be talking about things from the allocator perspective. So what are the big money managers? in crypto doing these days. And because you are such a good listener of On The Margin, I'm giving you an extra code, Margin20. So 
Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Again, use code MARGIN20, and I will see you in sunny London town in March. We're about to never go back to ties. I know. I'm actually, this is very, I actually like the comfy clothes. I'm, I'm, I don't know. Comfy's good, and, and comfy that looks sharp is good. Yeah. But man, I'm sorry, a, a well-cut suit, it's a tough look you to on beat. That. It's a tough I'm look to you. beat. I'm with you on that. Uh, so, so let me, I've got our London fact. Uh, and, and then ah. I want to get into, uh, so, okay, there's less of a London fact, but I was just something nerdy. going on in, in London coming up. <laughs> Don't you know, Mark, it's the biggest crypto uh, institutional conference of the year, March 18th to the 20th. We're both going to be there. It, oh, that's, that's, that's it. I mean, it is the, the capital T, capital H, capital E crypto event of the year in jolly old England. And, and look, if, if people don't go, oh, are they really part of the community? I mean, are I, you really part of the digital asset community if you're not in London March 18th to March 20th? I, I don't think you can answer affirmative. All right. So, Mark, we have so we've been hosting we've been hosting events for, you know, since 20 really since 2018. But that's that's events since 2019. We have, you know, eight years uh, or uh, sorry, eight times of uh eight conferences worth of data to collect on. We actually have a little spreadsheet where we have it out to the week. This is how many tickets we want to sell on a weekly basis leading up because they actually all come in relatively predictably. Do you want to guess where we're pacing relative to where we thought we'd be at the current time? Oh, we're probably 2x. 10x where we thought we'd be. (laughs) This is... Yeah, I it's uh, I'm well, thank you. There's a lot of people that uh, on the margin code has been used the most, although Empire is catching up a little bit, but you got to give it to us, folks. Um, Jason, I mean, Santi, I mean seriously, do you do you want to do you want to associate with young and beautiful or wise? <laughs> I, I, I think you would want to associate with wise. Well, Mark, we know that they're pity votes that they're getting. These are just uh, people. They're, they're, you they're, know what? Pity uses. I feel sorry for. It. Yeah, that's right. They're like, you know, yeah. you're just so handsome that it, we just feel sorry for you. <laughs> um, it's gonna. So let me let me give you this fact. Um, so I was I was doing some some research on the the British East India Company just because I've I've always heard this and I was like I don't know how big this thing was. Mark, do you know? Uh, so there were two companies actually. There's the Dutch. Uh, East India Company and the East India Company, not to be confused with one another. The British East India Company was actually formed two years before 1600. The Dutch East India Company was 1602. First joint stock company, by the yep. way, which is what they yep. get credit for. I'm going to loop that back in with crypto. Um, but there was, it was the first joint stock company. These, so here's something. You, you probably knew that they were very large. Essentially, they had, in the case of the Dutch East India Company, they would had a 21-year monopoly trading with... Um, uh, the East Indies was the area that they patrolled. These companies got so large. People talk about companies having too much control today. The British East India Company had an army at its control that was, Mark, get this, two times the size of the British army <laughs> it's at the peak of its control. Can you imagine something like that happening today? And with the, with the Dutch East India Company, it's, it's kind of even, it's kind of even more nuts. They could actually wage war. On behalf of the sovereign, they they had control within the justice system. I mean, I don't know. I just oh, no, uh, no, 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 no. But Michael, if you if you dig deep into this, um, again, because these predate the uh, original central bank, 
the Amsterdamsk Whistlebank, or Whistlebank, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, uh, which was established seven years later in 1609, uh, again by the Rothschild family, which created the mercenary force of which its roots were in this, this force that you talk of that conquered the Spanish Armada. Yeah. The most powerful naval force in the world in, in the 1500s that dominated the world, right? I mean, they, they created the world. Remember, there were no horses in North and South America. There were no pigs, no chickens. I mean, there's a lot of gold here that ended up back there. And, and, and so I'm not saying they were all perfectly good, but they were powerful. And this little tiny place, right, the size of Indiana, takes them over because of the ability to print money out of thin air and fund this mercenary force. And there are some really crazy stories about these trading companies in terms of um, pump and dump. There's some pump and dump stories. Oh, There's, uh, I mean, you know, Sir Isaac Newton losing his shirt. And I mean, there's all kinds of crazy stories about this. Yeah, it's like the first very prominent story that proves that scientists and doctors are not necessarily great investors to, to their grin. Different skill sets. So I was just, I just find that so interesting to go back because there's a lot of antitrust uh, sort of fervor today. And it's like, these people controlled government or controlled uh, armies could wage wars uh just super interesting. Now, okay, here's the interesting thing. So the joint stock company, this was an innovation by the Dutch East India Company where you actually sell ownership, which is something that we is very pop, we take for granted today, right? That's equities, yeah. stocks. Equities. So that at post um the the dissolution of both of these companies in the late 17 and, and early 1800s, joint stock actually fell out of favor. The next large company to use the joint stock uh, style of uh, of governance was. Do you want to guess who this was? Uh, um, it must have been in the U uh, in the UK. I can't. I can't think. Nope. Standard Oil. Standard oh my gosh. And John John D. Of Rockefeller. Oh John my god! D. Of course it was. Yeah, because at that time it was illegal for businesses domiciled in one state to do business across the border of another state, which, by the way, totally different time. The way that they got around this was a trust, which was governed by joint stock, and you could actually sell. And actually, John D. revived this old, at one point, very used sort of form of uh, corporate and financial structure to, or, A, get around essentially regulatory arbitrage. Yep. And he used it actually, he, he was kind of the guy. Now you're like, oh, you get equity in a company. That's how you build wealth. He basically pioneered that guy. He was famously, you know, kind of Plata Oplomo. He acquired a bunch of uh, companies, but everyone kind of got rich that he acquired on the Standard Oil stock. So yeah, let, let's just say he was called a robber baron for a reason. Oh, he's a ruthless businessman. Robber baron is not exactly a flattering term, right? It's not no. like... You know, it's not like uh, ponies and and unicorns. I mean, robbers are are you know some badass dudes, but but he also used this structure, well, structure is plural, uh, to insulate himself from 
you know, the unions. I mean, it, he was, he was bad. He was genius. He was. Yeah. He was There's a really great book, uh, John Chernow, uh, Titan, which is the biography of John D. He did some, yeah, he, he is, he is a, definitely a very savvy operator, but let, let's, let's, uh, zone in. I, want, I want to talk about the, the macro with you here for a second. We can start off with the, the jobs report that came out today, but I want to zone out to, Something that feels like a little bit of a macro shift uh, in terms of risk appetite and general willingness to to invest. So the, we had a, we had a jobs report came out uh, today. So that was a hundred um, ninety nine thousand jobs, uh, which was a beat. Unemployment has fallen back to three point seven percent. Now some of the details that underlie this strong jobs report was. We had the UAW strike, and there were a couple of strikes actually that ended. So people are returning to work. But, you know, overall, this is the type of thing where you might expect actually the stock performance. This is kind of a good news might be bad news situation because the idea, the logical sequence of events here being strong jobs. There's no reason for the Federal Reserve to cut rates, therefore higher for longer, therefore bad for stocks. But the market didn't seem to to react negatively here. In fact, it's up. So, I mean, Mark, what do you make of the strong jobs report other than the fact that it's manufactured, which I understand, but like, yeah. what did you think about the market's reaction to this? Uh, uh, <laughs> um, so many different questions in there. So, look, I, I think, I think, I think jobs is, it's tough to, to really look at it because you've got the, the jobs that are being created, which, which are real, right? I mean, but it's that season, right? There are going to be people that go to work to do deliveries and extra stocking. And, but the thing that's still happening is my brother and sister and the boomers are turning 65, 10,000 of us every day. And, and they, they take these people out of the workforce. And so you, you get this weird employment, unemployment thing. And so whatever. But the bottom line is, the mark so that to me that's different like jobs market is still fine and it's because i believe we're we're back to near normal and i just did the thing the reason i was in denver is doing this talk about you know relearning how to invest in the new normal which is the old normal like from 2009 to 2022 was the abnormal. Zero interest rates are not normal. Negative interest rates are not normal. Negative oil prices are not normal. That's not normal. And so people are freaking out because we're back at 5%. Well, we're not 5% anymore. We're at 4.3 on the 30 year and 4.2 on the, the 10 year. So we're not even at 5% anymore. So these are not high interest rates. They're at the bottom end of normal. And so in a normal world, these are normal numbers, right? We have normal job creation for a seasonal activity. You know, the third quarter GDP, I mean, the fourth quarter GDP estimates are, are down a little bit. You know, we had this big boom in growth in second and third quarter. And, and now the fourth quarter is back down in the one percentage and first quarter is probably going to be slightly negative because it always is seasonally. I was, like they say they seasonally adjust, then why is first quarter always so weak? It's like, why don't you figure out how to seasonally adjust it? Um, so anyway, but the market's reaction is, I think, the same all the time, right? If, if people believe 
that interest rates are going to get cut, they're buying risk assets, mostly stocks. And basically in the last eight weeks, that's what people believe. And you got everybody pointing to the Fed futures and all this stuff. And now they're saying they're going to cut in January. Like, what? Well, why? And, and, for, and I think it's because people are like, well, because we have to go back to zero. I'm like, we're, no, 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 no. We don't have to go back to zero. We can stay right where we are for a very long time and be at the low end of the normal range. Right. Right. And that's the part that I just think we have to get rid of the pollution, right? Of the pollution of the data. And, and that will happen. Um, so, so, so I, I'm not surprised by the market reaction. I'm not surprised. The one thing I am surprised by, to be honest, is most people would have no idea if I asked them, you know, which outperformed, I want to get the, the right dates here, in the last, so since October 20th, so, so in the last two months, what has outperformed stocks or bonds? And everybody said, oh, well, stocks. Nope. Bonds. bonds. Right? TLT is up 94 over 80. TLT is up almost 14% in the last seven, eight weeks. And it's because, and it's almost to the day, Bill Ackman tweeted that he had covered his bond shorts. And I don't remember the rest of the tweet, but there was something else too. And literally since that day, rates have gone straight down. Now, why is Bill Ackman covering his shorts? Well, remember, he and Jamie are besties and that whole group of people that are at the top of financial circles. It's not like they have insider trading inside information, but they have better information about what's happening in what I call the 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 uh, the the uh, PPP, the um, um Oh God, I'm I'm tired uh, because I went to bed so late. They they all they also just might be a large part of the market. I actually had I had drinks with a guy who the way he described it was like the thing they don't tell you on the macro podcast is there are about ten guys that really move the direction of no no it's the PPT. I'm sorry, the Plunge Protection Team. So this is the Council on Economic Stability, right? They meet every Sunday, and it's remember it's the head of J.P. Morgan and the head of City and the head of Goldman Sachs and the head of more and I can't remember the fourth one and or Morgan Stanley. And then the secretary of the treasury and the, the head of the Fed, and they meet at the New York Fed and, and they make the decisions. Well, if your buddies are meeting in that meeting, you probably hear about it over coffee, right? I mean, again, not, 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 not saying there's anything bad necessarily. I'm just saying that it's like when, when Julian had his run in the early days of, of Tiger. You know, part of it was he had a small fund and he was just better. He hired better people like John Griffin. And like, but part of it was he got the first call because there was no Stevie Cohen yet. And Julian got the first call from Morgan Stanley. He had a great relationship with Barton and Byron. And it wasn't that they were playing favorites. Like, well, 
it was old fashioned phone call. I can only call one person at a time. So first person is my favorite customer. So I'm gonna call him first. And again, not untoward, just it's the way it works. Way it works. Yeah. I, you know, it's it, the other thing. So I, one thing that I think that I'm starting to align on as a framework um, is, you know, uh, Jim Bianco said this on this program before, Wall Street's full of mean reverters. And I used to think, wow, these people just don't get it. Probably that's the right way to look at it. As, as in like, it usually does mean revert. So therefore, if, if it's not going to mean revert, the burden of proof is on you to explain why it's not going to. And well, sometimes it's a hundred percent mean reverting, and he's exactly right. One, because all of us were trained the same way in the same school, meaning the Markowitz framework, the CAPM model, and the Scholl—I mean, the the Black Scholes model and the the Litterman model—and and and you know the ex Goldman people populate you know the head. So everyone's trained the same. And the second thing is. As we moved to a high-frequency trading world, that mean reversion became even stronger because the machines iterate to the mean. And, and if you control those machines, then you, you have an edge. I mean, you go back to the, the days, there's this guy, um, I can't remember his first name, but Hall. Um, he's from Chicago and he was a, a math genius and it's not Brett Hall cause that was the, the hockey player, but, um, I can't remember his first name. doesn't matter. So he started trading options on the Chicago options exchange. And then he noticed there was some anomaly with the Pacific exchange, right? Cause the time difference. And, and so he was just, I mean, he was crushing it. Mm. And and the, as the urban legend goes, he basically got barred for being too good a player. Like, you're not allowed to do this anymore. And so he had to find another way and he started a different type of trading company. He sold Goldman Sachs and he's done done great. But but that went away. Right? Over time there was no Pacific exchange and you know the 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 technology erased that bid ass spread. You know, and people should do it in London too, right? They, you know, do one in New York and one in London. And, um, the one place it does still happen is the overnight trade. Like most of the gains in equities still happen overnight. That's funny. Like if you trade during the day, you basically don't make any money. It's all in a gap between the close and the open. Both ways, up and down, but on average, market goes up more than down. So if you just own the gaps, and there's this amazing chart, and it's just massive alligator jaws over the last decade. It's crazy. That's so funny. Why is that? It's just because there's a bunch of information that needs to get priced in that. Well, it's, it's a couple of things. I mean, part of it is the mutual funds have to trade the last minute of the day from 3.59 to 4 o'clock. That's when they get to set their NAV. Okay. Um, part of it is the institutions have to trade between 3.30 and 4, or is it 3 and 3.30? I can't remember. I think it's 3.30 and 4. So uh, so there are these weird windows. And I, I used to tweet about this all the time, about the smart money and the dumb money. And these are terms of art. And the dumb money is, is the retail money. And they trade on the open, right, at 9.30 to 10. Never do that. 
because they get victimized by this gap because the gap already happened, right? The news happens overnight. And let's say, you know, somebody drops a bunch of bombs in Afghanistan, market opens down, right? So then the, the retail money that heard that news puts an order in at market and they get marked down and then it creeps back all day. So they put their short in at the beginning and then they lose money all day. And the smart money comes in at the end of the day, sees how the market's adjusting to the news and then makes a decision. And I would say, you can tell the direction of the market, whether in kind of distribution, whether the, the, the whales are selling or, uh, um, not attribution, but, um, God, I can't, this is so bad. Um, accumulation, accumulation. So you're the accumulation mode or distribution mode. When you're accumulating, that's why Bitcoin right now is so beautiful. It's like the most amazing accumulation pattern. I know. What's going on, everybody? Thank you for listening to On The Margin. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a very special offer that we have coming out of BlockWorks Research. Now, many of you will probably be familiar with our platform, but BlockWorks Research is the most blue chip spot to get research, data, governance, models, and a whole lot more about the leading DeFi protocols in the space. I've leaned on our analysts time and time again to explain complicated concepts going on in DeFi to me like I'm five years old. They can do the same for you. If you invest in DeFi or are just interested in it, it is an absolute no-brainer. As a listener of On The Margin, and to say thank you all for listening to the show, you can use Margin 10 for a 10% discount, and that gives you access to everything, which would be weekly in-depth reports, live data, all of that good stuff. So again, that's code Margin10 for a 10% discount. Link is in the show notes. Sign up now. Thank you later. I saw you tweet out the same thing we talked. It was just, you know, if you look at it over any time horizon, it's just an absolutely gorgeous. It's just a gorgeous chart. Every high is higher. Every low is higher. And that is an accumulation pattern. And you say, well, who's accumulating? It doesn't matter. It's little guys are accumulating, big guys are accumulating. Someone said, well, what if, what if BlackRock's doing all the accumulating and then they're just going to sell to themselves? Well, they, they could actually be doing that and they, they probably are. And that's a little bit brilliant, actually. So, I mean, because again, they, they know they're going to get approved. I, I am, I am going to, no, I'm not. I was going to say, I'm, I'm going to soften my stance on only BlackRock because I'm, I'm starting to feel like maybe Fidelity and Templeton might get it too, but I still, it's just, I'm going to go down with this ship. I'm just going to say only BlackRock, but do it, baby. Stick to your guns. Yeah. I, I actually got to give a shout out to Vanek. Vanek is their ticker is HODL. Great, great ticker. Oh, They've also got this ticker. intern. They've done a really good job. You know, they're a very traditional firm and they've done a very good job of threading the needle between that and the crypto natives, which I don't know. Leadership. I, it. I think it's leadership. Great. It's all about leadership. I mean, Jan is, is an amazing leader. He's an inspirational figure. He's brilliant. He's a cool guy. Everyone wants to work for him. And then you got people like Gabor and, and all these. So they, they just got talent, right? And <laughs> talent wins, hint, hint, right? Talent wins. And, and also, yeah. like, you know, I don't know if it was the first DAS, might've been the second, but it was the last one 
before lockdowns in 19- I think this was the one where you gave the speech at the that was the second one that that was the conference that gave me the most heartburn I've ever gotten from anything that I've done professionally but I'll tell you that story yeah ah, okay <laughs> yeah yeah but that was um, my favorite experience because I gave my look there's a global war for talent speech yeah. And I said, you're the re- you, the people who are at this conference and all the people that are going to come join us in London are the reason I'm doing this. And people say, well, why would you give up this, this great career and do this crazy stuff with these crypto kids? I'm like, because they're brilliant, they're motivated, they're passionate, they're hungry. And it's a true story. Kid comes up to me. I shouldn't call him a kid, but he, he was a kid. Um, I mean that in a loving way. He was just young, young person. And he says, will you call my mom? Like, what? My mom thinks I'm an idiot. I left this big law firm. I said, yeah, let's call your mom. And we called his mom and he's not an idiot and he's doing great. And so. That's amazing. I, uh, yeah, that conference was like, the, it was, I mean, that was really at the tail end of that bear market before anything had come back at all. It was very hard to sell anything to get anyone to anything. And we, we, we hosted another conference before it and we sort of woke up and we were like, wait, okay, we're okay for this conference, but we have no one booked or anything for this one yeah. two months after the amount that we were going to lose basically would have taken us down as a company that's why i say it was the most stressful heartburn we, we ended up pulling it off and it was it was a good conference but um but yeah and and that's what just to give you like zoom back into what's going on with with crypto is so you know you ask who's buying the right now i i think i'm not a trader but what I, i'm looking at two things i'm looking at the volume on cme Mm-hmm. CME, that is institutional trading. CME is now the largest futures exchange for Bitcoin and ETH. That is nuts how That's much nuts. The volume has moved Crazy. on there. Or by it's by open interest. I think it's by open interest. So you can it's pretty safe to assume that's a very good proxy for institutional interest in the space. The other thing that's happened is Coinbase, all the Bitcoin miners, they're all up like crazy. That is usually more institutional buying than retail buying. And I still think I had a debate with someone about this. Um, actually, uh, Quinn, the guy who's on the show this week, you know, when do we think retail is coming back? Because it, it's just funny, like on my timeline, everyone's very euphoric. You know, it's been a huge week for Solana. Uh, they basically, there's, there's the equivalent of for, for some folks here who may remember, there's something called DeFi summer, it was kind of the first, um, you know, there's Uniswap and the, there was the first time you could use these apps and you could yield farm and do all this cool stuff. And people still remember it as a very fun time. That's basically going on in Solana right now. And, but the, uh, but retail's not even back yet to this market. Like retail's not here. You know, look for Coinbase to be the number one app on the app store. There's your signal for, uh, retail being back. Look, We're still we so far away from that. We haven't even started. Yeah. We haven't even started. It, this is this is what's so amazing. So one is when I say we haven't even started. So when, what I'm talking about there is the big cycle, my 14 year cycle, my 54, 68, 82, 96, 2010, 2024, which is still three weeks away. That's the beginning. That's the beginning of the middle part of the S curve. Right. That's where we go from, you know, 20, 10% adoption to, and like we're 11 now to, to 90. It's going to be an unbelievable decade. I mean, unbelievable. So much fun. So it doesn't mean it won't be without volatility, but it's going to be fun. So that's the first thing. Second thing is we're still in 
Crypto Summer, right? Crypto Summer is not straight up. Crypto Summer is casually drift. And we've been talking about this since June. I know. We've been talking about this since June that we were going to the low. You 50. were more convinced than I was to your credit. I know. I, I know. But yeah. I mean, it was just, it was just, it's the way it happens. And Tim Peterson's model is the model, right? If we you want to know the value of the network, you, you look at Tim's model and then you say, okay, well, if we're below the value, then who's buying? Investors who buy things below fair value. And we were going to creep. And it's been this, oh God, so beautiful. It's just a beautiful movement towards that low fifties. But then the halving is going to happen and fair value is going to double. And people are like, no, what, no, no, that's not how it works. I'm like, yes, yes, it is. Because the difficulty adjustment aside, but, but the bottom line is the miners got to get paid. And so the, 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 the fair value is going to double. And so then we're going to get to the beginning of crypto fall and that's next June. That's when the parabolic stuff starts and next Thanksgiving. Oh my God, it's going to be crazy. I, I just, I just can't even imagine how crazy next Thanksgiving is going to be. So that's why it's just, it's just beginning. And then on January 8th, right? The King is going to be crowned. Okay. It's Elvis's birthday. It's also my son's birthday, his 13th birthday. And the king is going to be crowned and BlackRock's going to be approved on that day. First day, two bills. Two bills, first day. Easy. I might be light on that. Maybe it's three bills. But at least 30 bill is coming in those first months. And remember, we went from 10K Bitcoin to 59K Bitcoin on 10 billion of flow into GBTC. Mm. This is, there's, so I don't, I'm, and, oh, and that's the point, right? Is this is the, and I'm, you know, I'm giving credit where credit's due, Dan Moorhead or whoever wrote I was just, I was, yeah. Mark, I have it queued up here. I'm going to. Buy the rumor, buy the news, baby. This is a great, so Dan is the, the founder over at, at, um, Pantera and just a phenomenal macro thinker and, you know, so early and so right to this entire industry. And, you know, this is the thing that people are debating is the Bitcoin ETF a buy the rumor, sell the news event. And what he points to is there's a CME is kind of cursed with their product launches in crypto. So Bitcoin futures, they launched at the absolute uh, Pico top. Yep. Uh, they did. I actually, I don't even think it's on here Oh, because this only goes through 20. Oh, yeah, but there's, uh, yeah, they did the same thing in, um, yeah, there's a Coinbase direct listing. There's all, all these things that, uh, you know, are very showy, um, you know, kind of buy the rumor, sell the news events in crypto. There's, there's an ETH product as well that they did this yep. way. The yeah, launch but, of the, you know, the futures ETF. Yeah. 21. But, but he, uh, you know, basically just summarizes that, you know, he was trading at Goldman uh, back in the day before commodities were even recognized as an asset class. And now there's a bunch of uh, you know ETFs that are put around them. And, you know, you can just look at what the price action did. And he concludes this whole thing by saying, buy the room, is this a buy the rumor, buy the news. And that's, that's, I think I would be feeling differently. None of this is financial advice ever, but all the smart people that I know in crypto are like, this is buy the rumor, sell the news on this Bitcoin ETF. I was like, 
What are you? It's so about? wrong, and it's We've so been waiting wrong. here for for Mark. How long? No, what? they're so wrong. Ten years. The Ten difference years. is, the difference is, an event that that is going to happen, and and you front run it, so to speak. Okay, and then the event happens, and and nothing really changes, right? Because you got to, you know, the company's got to grow or whatever. This is very different. And, and I think what, what, what he's comparing it to, and look, Dan and I've been friends for 30 years. And, you know, when left Goldman and went to Tiger, you know, that's when we first started kind of hanging out. And then we backed him when he formed Pantera Macro. We were one of his first institutional investors. And he's the guy, right? He's the reason I'm here, right? He's the reason. He, 10 years ago, November, said, hey, come to San Francisco. Everyone's heard this story. And, you know, he's like, I'm spending the rest of my, I'm shutting down the fun, get back a billion dollars, charging two and 20. We're all like, why? He's like, well, because I'm going to build a business where I'm going to have, you know, six, eight, 10 times that, which he already does. So, but what he's saying is we both lived this experience where if you go back 70 years, no one, right? No fiduciary owned anything but bonds. Right, equities were not so funny to me. I mean, because you you were a bad fiduciary if you because remember, bonds are a contractual claim. Equities are contingent claim. You might not get paid back. They could go bankrupt. You might you might lose everything. And there was just there was no culture. And then slowly the culture developed. Markowitz came out with his theory in in fifty seven, and people said, oh, if if I take bonds and add stock, my risk is actually lower. What? What? Okay. So then stocks became a thing. And then international stocks became a thing. And then in the 80s, no, nah, it, was, it was early 90s, actually. It was 90, 91, 92. Um, commodities, hard assets became a thing. But no one invested in commodities except these crazy people. We've all seen in Ferris Bueller with the hand signals in the pits in Chicago. And that's who traded commodities. And commodities were not for institutional investors. Well, Goldman Sachs came up with this idea to create something called the Goldman Sachs Commodity Index. And people were still afraid. And so one of the genius things was people did principal protected notes. So they basically used a combination of bonds and futures on uh, these, these commodity indices to create a, a, a hybrid asset where you couldn't lose your money, right? They bought zero interest or you know, zero coupon bonds and they'd accrete to the value and you get your money back. And then they use 20 to 30% to buy these futures. And so if commodities went up, you, you made a bunch of money too. And institutions are like, I can't lose my money. Oh, okay. Okay. I'll try it. And they dipped their toe. And then the sharp ratios went up, the risk went down. They're like, bring it. And boom. And once everybody started buying, not the futures, but the actual commodities, commodities were just a rocket ship. And that's what's happening here. We're not talking about futures. We're not talking about making paper Bitcoin. We're talking about every dollar that goes in. They don't get to say, yeah, you kind of own a derivative instrument, they have to go buy a Bitcoin. And I got news for them. 
not everybody's going to sell. And so at Econ 101, that's what Danny's talking about. Econ 101, when demand increases and supply is relatively fixed, it's not perfectly fixed because there are a lot of people say, I'll never sell. They'll sell. They'll sell. Of course they'll sell. They'll sell little because when the price, because everybody's got that FU amount that they, they want to have actually in treasuries. They've held it in crypto, but, but it would be better if it was in treasuries. And then they let the rest ride, the house money. And, and that's what's going to happen as we start to get into six figure Bitcoin. And, and so that's, that's going to happen, but, but they have to buy it. And someone else asked, was trying to ask me, I haven't responded yet, but I will this weekend. Well, it took gold a long time to really ramp after GLD. I go, okay, remember who's on the other side of GLD. On the other side of every long trade of GLD is JP Morgan short gold. There was a point a number of years ago. Remember, I mean, this was right after the financial crisis and all the banks had to put their information out in public, right? Because they were all going through this conversion to become banks. And long story short, Scott Besson, this famous hedge fund manager that worked for uh, Soros and now runs a, a firm uh, called KeySquare based on the chess, you know, the four squares in the middle. And long story short, he actually read, and he says all 44,000 pages. I'm not sure if he actually read all 44,000 pages, but he read all the stuff on JP Morgan. And he found that they were actually short two times the world's gold. Short, naked, short, naked. And that's why gold was stuck. Like between 200 and 400, it just wouldn't move. And now we're at 2000 because now the long side pushed it up. And yes, it took a while because JP Morgan still spoofs gold every year. They're naked short selling and they get fined every year for spoofing a billion dollars. Maybe it's not a billion dollars every year, but a couple of years ago, it was a billion dollars. But they're like, we make 200. I mean, we make 20 billion. So it's 5%. Yeah. Pocket change. Well, the other, the other thing too is the market probably wasn't as, you know, once everyone sees something and understands the relationship between an ETF that's getting wrapped around a commodity and they see what happens to price once, then you have that precedent set in your head. And, you know, one of the things that I think is happening with at least Bitcoin this cycle is that some of that price action is getting pulled forward because, you know, people, you know, 2020 wasn't that long ago. It's like, I've seen this movie before. Uh, well, here, look, here's the thing. And I don't want to go completely lunatic fringe crazy on this, but no one owns Bitcoin. Yeah, you might be right. But you know, no, no one, one really owns like, gold either. This is what DTAP, uh, no DTAP one says. owns Bitcoin. There are 8 billion people in the world very, 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 very small number actually own Bitcoin. And part of it's because 3 billion don't have electricity with regularity, so they're not going to own it. You know, another 3 billion don't have a bank account. Think about that. 3 billion people in this country, in this world don't have a bank account. So they can't, you know, buy things. Um, and there's all these different reasons. Many have never even heard of Bitcoin, believe it or not, right? There are people who have no idea what it is. And 
when you start getting to the 100 million or 150 million, whatever the number is that, that actually do, it's this teeny, teeny, tiny fraction. And even those, right? There's a whole bunch of them are like, I'm not still, I'm not sure I believe it. I'm not sure it's an institutional asset. I'm not sure it's real. It still could be a Ponzi. It still could be a rug. Once the ETF happens and once venerated names like BlackRock and Fidelity and are here, forget about it. You know, this rumor, which I think is a little disingenuous personally, but a sovereign. Yeah. About Cutter saying, oh, we should convert our whole five, you know, half a trillion. Maybe they said that. I doubt it, but maybe they said it. Maybe it was a joke, but they're not going to do that. But would they do 10%? Would they do 20%? Um, and look, every corporation, in theory, should listen to Michael Saylor, who's saying, if you have this devaluing asset, just sitting idle, your cash, are you doing a disservice to your shareholders? Now, uh, when I'll, I'll actually push back against down, what? I'll push back against that actually, but you, I, I have no, a, no, no, no. I'm just, yeah. I just, I will too, for 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 the reasons that I, I, I don't believe Bitcoin should be all of your assets ever. I, I don't. Um, but but to have a portion that's deflationary instead of inflationary could make some sense. And but my my point there is. Even when he did it and it was successful, then it wasn't successful and now it's successful again. Not, not everybody else did it, right? Not everybody went and issued bonds and bought Bitcoin because they're, I don't know, they're afraid or they don't think that's a good fiduciary move, all kinds of reasons. But as this asset becomes more adopted, a couple of things are going to happen. One, the volatility is going to shrink because remember, volatility is simply uncertainty about future outcomes. That's what volatility is. T-bills have no volatility because there's no uncertainty. In 91 days, you're going to get paid. And it's never not happened. And it probably never will not happen. I mean, maybe never is probably too too strong, but that's there's no uncertainty. So there's no volatility. Amazon stock has really high volatility because there are people still today. Michael, I met somebody. They still say, oh, Oh, no, maybe you said this. I said you, this. You said yeah, that. Yeah. No, that's right. But I actually met somebody, too, that said, you know, I, I, I don't buy very much on Amazon. I don't, I, don't, I don't know that it's really. What? Well, so, okay. I have a, so, all right. Let's look at gold and Bitcoin because I think it's interesting. So, Bit, gold made some people. So, if you look at the way that gold performed in after they moved off the in the the seventies, and it was legal to own again, and uh, and also how it performed. I, they had a crazy run after GLD first got uh, first mm-hmm. got approved. Um, it created these people who are colloquially referred to as the gold bugs, gold bugs. and and these people have held gold uh, after a period. It basically underperformed almost everything outside of those two periods, and actually almost almost including those two periods. Even if you look at it over any any real amount of time, it uh, it's underperformed 
bonds, like yield-bearing cash, bonds, stocks, almost anything else. So why do these people feel so fervent about it? And part partially, it's an ideological thing, I think. There is a logical component to it, which is I think people have correctly looked and identified that the way we do debt in this country and the world at large is, I think, nuts. And gold is theoretically the antidote to that. But also there's an important psychological component. And this is what I think happens to people that have been in crypto for a long time as well. You're getting conditioned like a lab rat. You know, it, you, like when the number goes up that much and you think it has to stop, but it just keeps going, you learn this lesson of I don't sell and you stop thinking about it. And then you just are like, this number goes up and I never sell. And uh, that, you know, that is the one, that is the one thing I have maybe changed a little bit um, when it comes to the HODL meme and f- forever. And mm-hmm. I don't know, I, I, I think I think this industry is in an early stage where we're creating digital commodities for the first time that are entering price discovery. Yeah. For that reason, I think it's the most interesting place that you could possibly risk your capital, your time, your attention. No, but it would be a mistake to say that this is going to go on forever because I don't think yeah. that it will probably. No, but, but, but here's the thing. So to that point, so since the day in 1933, when we changed gold, right? Made it, made it illegal to own. So over that 90 year period, gold is compounded at 4.7%. Okay. That's roughly equal to the yield on government bonds. Okay. Now, why is that? Well, because the yield on government bonds is roughly equal to inflation. And the risk-free rate is roughly equal to inflation over the long term. So there's zero real return on, on average. And so it's closer to 4%. So gold's right there. It's not, not, not very different. Well, why is that? Because the dollar has devalued by that much. That's all gold is, right? Gold is just an, a, it's, it's a arbiter of the devaluation of the currency in which you price it. Because if I if I gave you the gold price, not in dollars, but in yen or euros or something else, it would be a different number because uh, they're they're devaluing at a different clip. If I gave it to you in, in pounds sterling, it'd be different because pounds been around for 300 and some odd years, 80 some odd years. So, but what's what's interesting is if if Bitcoin is, I'll argue it is, digital gold, then we are 20%-ish of the way there, the monetary value of gold, the amount of gold that's in central bank vaults and you know that kind of stuff. And if, if that's what it's going to become, and then can it be something beyond that? And, and then we got to get into, well, there's big B Bitcoin, and then there's little B Bitcoin, there's the network, which has some value, particularly as a settlement layer. And then there's the token, which I think could, could and should be this digital gold. But then is it also going to be a medium of exchange? You know, we don't walk around with gold coins in our pocket. We leave the gold coins in the vault and then we create this fiat stuff so that we can, you know, exchange goods and services. If it becomes that, volatility will trend basically to gold volatility, which is not that high. I mean, it's not zero, but it's not that high. And it will become hoarded, just like gold, by the people that use it as the base layer of money. And maybe it goes a different direction, but if it goes that direction, 
I, I think we have, you know, what a, a four more X, which, you know, that's great, but it's not the moon, you know, it's not a thousand X like some people think or in, you know, there's that's some people I mean. say it's, it's going to go up to infinity because the dollar is going to go to zero. I'm like, well, I mean, I, you know, gonna happen. here's, here's a, um, here's where I've ultimately landed on that argument. I don't want that. And neither does anyone else. Neither does anybody if, you really else. Down, if you really sat down and thought about it, I think you would come to that conclusion because there is no world. There's simply no world where the U S enters some amount of hyperinflation and Bitcoin just goes to the moon. And then the government just peacefully lets up. Oh, well, if you bought Bitcoin, like you're okay, but everyone else is screwed. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. No world where that happens. I think we should mm -hmm. just start changing the narrative, narrative, and advocating for a world where Bitcoin is a check on government spending, and that would be an amazing. Like, I would love that. Here's here's what I would love as uh, as Bitcoin and crypto. I would love it if it was a check on government spending, the same way we used to have the bond vigilantes. Maybe this is the new version of that, right? a gold that young people want to own and more transparency in the financial system and a new platform to build businesses on. And guys, that's, that'd be that trillion dollar opportunity there. Let's call it a day. That's great. I'm really stoked yeah. with that outcome. Amen. Now, here, let me show you, a, let me show you one chart in closing here. Cause I thought it was interesting. This is, we are looking at the distribution of ownership uh, in the stock market by generation. This comes from Goldman Sachs. So, you can look at, uh, you know, going back to 1990, and this goes through 2020, so I guess it could have changed a little bit. But, uh, you know, 17% of the stocks today are owned by, um, it's $39 trillion, 17% are owned by the silent gen, silent generation, 53% are owned by the baby boomers, 27% are owned by Gen X, 3% are owned by millennials. So here's the real bull case for crypto. And I think some of the people who are older listening to this uh, are going to be potentially dismayed or not agree with me. But I would just say, just take this to a young millennial, uh, a millennial or a Gen Z and, and run this argument by them and see the response that you get. The general perception of millennials is that uh, they cannot achieve financial freedom. Actually, there's a really interesting poll in the New York Times. Did they ask people of different generations, how, how much money do you have? Do you need to be rich? Um, and millennials were like way off. It was like 1.7 million net worth. And you know, you could say the millennials are, you know, like a spoiled, entitled generation. That's what every old generation thinks about every new generation. I, there might even be some merit to it. But I think that the, the millennials are now at, at a point when they have to buy a home, uh, buy a home. And they have to, they're like planning for their future. They're entering the next phase of their life. And, you know, okay, so the, the existing system has manipulated things such that the price of homes and stocks are very, they've, They've kept those prices up. That's great. Nothing has collapsed. But if you're a new person and you're entering that regime, none of those options, the ability to achieve financial freedom in the same way that our parents did it, are, it's not available to us. And, and I think that is what pushes people. You know, people seek alternative options, and that is essentially what, what crypto represents. And if you, again, you can watch the Coinbase ads. I don't know if you saw these, Mark, but they were yeah. just great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very yep. red. And it just, that is, I think over time, um, and that's what I think when, when people talk about gold, you know, it's this 10,000 year thing. It's like, yeah, I get it. It's been around for 10,000 years, but that's not going to help me because gold goes up on a really good year. Like five, that doesn't, 
that's not going to help me get to where I need to be to do these things that I want to do. But crypto might. And I think that's the, um, it's actually in a sort of depressing way, the same reason probably that Donald Trump got elected. Right? Everyone's so sick of the way politics work. It's like, well, I don't know what this guy is, but he's something different. And mm-hmm. I, I think that's the same underlying energy that, that drives crypto as well, actually. Um, so I'll, I'll agree with some points and I'll yeah, push, back. push back on a couple right. points in that if you flip this upside down, what you what you'd see is all the wealth in stocks used to be owned by the silent generation, right? Mm. And why is that number lower? They died. <laughs> I don't mean I mean I don't mean all at once, but I mean every day a certain number of them pass on. And where's that money go? To us, to us boomers. And also as us boomers age, <laughs> the way it works. Not, not, not all the time, right? There are plenty of young people who become rich early. Not, not that many actually, but, but a decent number. And, and that's been true of all, all time. Um, but the, on average, you, you're pretty poor when you're young and then you work and you toil and you eventually accumulate some assets and those assets accumulate. And, and then the way compounding works is if you, you know, held those, 10 shares of IBM that your aunt bequeathed you when she died and you held it for 40 or 50 years, it's actually worth a lot of money. And, and my, my brother-in-law is a uh, broker for, for UBS. His biggest clients are that story, right? It's somebody who, you know, 50 years ago got 10 shares of IBM or, you know, 10 shares of ExxonMobil and they never touched it and it's worth a lot of money. And so that's why that light blue, uh, uh, goes up the way it does, it's it's not that they necessarily accumulated more. I mean, they did, but it's also that the value is accreting. And so what's going to happen is all of that, all 39 trillion of it is going to go to that next generation when we pass. And so that that dark, that light blue is going to start shrinking over the next 30 years. Now, the question that does 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 bear you know thinking about is because I, I talk about this digital divide all the time, right? Ask anyone over 35 who's your broker and they say UBS, Merrill Lynch, why? How much gold do you have? I don't know, three, four percent. Uh how much Bitcoin do you have? Yeah, zero Ponzi scheme, Peter Schiff. I mean, yeah. How often do you use DeFi? What the hell is DeFi? Okay. Ask someone under 35 who's your broker. What the hell's a broker? I mean, Robin Hood, I get Robin Hood. How much gold do you have? Boomer rocks? Peter Schiff? Yeah. How much Bitcoin do you have? Don't want to talk about it. Why? Well, it's a big part of my net worth. I'm kind of embarrassed, right? Um, how can you DeFi? Every day. So the question is, when you get that inheritance and you get that UBS account full of ExxonMobil and Microsoft, are you going to liquidate it and put it in crypto? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. And... What's going to happen, and this is why I love the business I'm in today, which is venture capital. Like I, right before you and I got on this podcast, I was talking to a CEO of a company that we're helping to back that has a chip. Uh, they're in tape out right now that they believe solves the problem. Like, I don't know if you have an iPhone or not, but if you go to anyone who has an iPhone, okay, anyone who has an iPhone, go to, uh, 
passwords. So go to settings, you know, the, the little gray square and then go down to passwords right below your wallet and hit passwords. And, you know, it'll pop up notifications, security notifications. And it'll tell you how many times your data has been breached. My mind's 106. I met a guy last night, thousand. Now, one of the guys I met last night, I made him do it zero. I'm like, you're a CIA guy. There's, there's no way zero. I mean, but they think they have a chip that solves this because the only, when your data is in the cloud in order to work on it, they have to decrypt it. And while you work on it and it's decrypted, people can hack it and they steal your stuff. And so these guys have a chip that keeps it crypt- encrypted. Makes my head hurt to think about, but if they, if that works, if that, if their chip works, we're going to make a lot of money. And the people that buy that stock are going to make a lot of money. And so yeah. young people don't have a lot to begin with. That's the nature of the beast. Not, not every young person doesn't, but, but that's the way it works. You, you, you make less when you're young and then you get older and richer. And, and the one difference, and we don't have, we can't go too far into it, but the one difference is the housing thing. Post World War II, everybody came back. They passed laws to encourage homeownership, right? And today, the only interest you can deduct is mortgage interest. That's all about, because they knew with this huge cohort of people that, you know, were born after the war, that there was no way the government could fund them. So they had to give them a way to create wealth and leveraged real estate. It's a pretty good way to create wealth as our leverage stocks and, and others. But so that made sense. Now, as that real estate gets priced out into oblivion and you can't afford to buy in as a young person, now you're just renting, you do need another asset. So what I love about your analysis is maybe there is this secular change where we're swapping a store of value, real estate, for another store of value, Bitcoin at all, but the other thing, and this is a, a Dan Moorhead thing too, if you look at web one and web two, all of the value went to the application layer. None of it went to the protocols. TCP IP, we're using it right now. You know, Tim Berners-Lee didn't get paid for inventing website, you know, can't, can't own it. In web three, we're going to work on L1s and L2s and L3s, but you can own those. And so maybe that home is now ownership of the infrastructure layer of the internet of value that I could get around. Mm. All right. I like that analogy. That's good pushback. I, I agree with you. Um, I agree with you that I think I, that's a really good framing, actually, that every generation needs their wealth creation opportunity. And I could see that being crypto. I would, qu- I, I think there's, this is the fat protocol thesis. This is Joel Manegro originally published this when he was at Union Square Ventures. And there's possible, it's possible that that is, that that will be the case, but it's also possible that we just haven't built many useful apps yet. And it could actually, I could see it going the other way. No, no, I, I, I totally agree with you. And that's why there will be apps. There will be dApps and, and you'll be able to own the equity of those. And, and after the bust in 28, right, we're going to have a bull market from 24 to 28. It's going to rip faces. It's going to rip faces just like 96 to 00. It's going to be unbelievable. Michael, we're going to have so much fun over the next four years. Our five-year anniversary party is going to be right before the crash, and it's going to be awesome. And and then the crash is going to wipe out all the bad stuff, 
and then the good stuff gets started, right? That's when the boom of Web2 started post the 2001, 2002 crash. So the same thing's going to happen here. And so, yes, there's going to be equity built and people are going to buy it. Like people are going to own Niobium equity and they're going to own equity in other businesses and they're going to make a lot of money. NVIDIA was a nothing burger for years. They made boards that went in gamers and who was a gamer? I mean, a bunch of nerds and geeks, whatever. And then it's like, wait a minute, I can mine Bitcoin on that? What, people ooh. always fade the nerds and geeks. It's like, how many always. times do these people be right? It's crazy. Michael, anytime something's called a fad, buy it with both hands. If they say it rots your brain, buy it with three hands. I mean, it's just, those are the the, the cues. Here, let me, let me just end with something that I think is I a personal theory about why I think people react negatively to crypto sometimes um, you know, people, all right, people get wealthy by solving a particular problem. When you solve a particular problem, you adopt a view of the world, right? And whether or not, you know, you're like, this is how I solve the problem and kind of your identity sort of gets, gets tied up. And when a new platform comes along, you say, well, it doesn't solve my problem. I have a platform that was made to solve this particular problem. The web two solution, because you couldn't monetize the open protocols was to create walled gardens. They're like, I know how to solve this problem. Mm -hmm. I create walled garden. I capture this amount of value. Absolutely. The Web3 paradigm is completely different. It actually explicitly seeks out walled gardens and decentralizes and neutralizes them. And actually, there is strong social pushback against rent capture and the social layer. People hate it in crypto. And it's and what it makes you do is redefine your business model. And and that is, I think, why you know people from Web2 look at crypto and you're like, this makes no sense, guys. This is how, how you build a business. It's like, this isn't how you built a business in this paradigm but it has to be a ask the silent generation how to build a business they would have told you one way property plant and equipment control stuff i'm john d rockefeller-esque i yeah i i own stuff i'm i am buildings i own machines i am i am a icon ask people in the boomer generation how to build a business I serve, I service people. I have ice cream stores and I have, I have, I service people. Ask people in Gen X and Gen Y how you build a business. SaaS. I, I sell software, software reading the world. Okay. Once you realize crypto is not some crazy get rich quick thing, this is the fundamental foundational technology of the next generation of tech. And once that light bulb goes off, ask the Gen A's, okay, ask my grandkids how they build businesses. Well, you build on blockchains. What, what are you talking about? <laughs> build on blockchains. And why is Jamie, Day, Jamie Dimon having an apoplectic fit? And why is Elizabeth Warren, you know, those squinty eyes giving us this bullshit? They're scared. They are scared to death. They are so scared because they've had an 838 year monopoly. And she looks like she's that old. No, 838 year monopoly and is getting busted. And this is going to liberate $7 trillion of rentier theft. And when you put $7 trillion into the hands of young people, the world is going to be amazing. Yeah, I tend to agree. I'm with you on that. It is. It is. 
Yeah, I, let's just end on that. That's a good note to end on. I agree with you. Um, <laughs> Mark, Mark uh, yeah. best hour of my week, my um, friend. Always, always. I will, I will see you same Have time. Have a good one. Cheers. Cheers.